All right, let's get started. Well, several weeks ago, we resumed the, the second half of this baptism series. And the second half, we're really focusing all on water baptism. We learned about the other ways the Bible speaks of baptism. Now we're really trying to rightly understand the church's ordinance of water baptism. And that's what most people think of when they think of baptism anyway. Everyone seems to agree, you know, water is involved at some point, but otherwise disagreements can pile up. But we're mostly now trying to figure out the significance of the act. What does water baptism signify? What does it do? Is it a purely symbolic act? Does it do more? And there are three main views of baptism that we've been studying Nietzsche explains the significance of water baptism differently, the sacramental view, covenantal view, and the symbolic view. And so far, we've studied the sacramental and the covenantal view, which just leaves the symbolic view left, and that's our subject for tonight. Now, that said, we're still largely going to interact with uh, the covenantal view from last week. That view is often referred to just, you know, infant baptism view, whereas the symbolic view is typically referred to as believer's baptism. And these are the two main views among evangelical Christians. They share some similarities and some points of agreement on baptism, but they have a a clear and basic disagreement on the function and the significance of baptism, which leads them to apply it differently, either including infants or excluding infants. So last week, we did our best to explore why they baptize infants, why they believe this, how they make their case. And uh, we also explored why we disagree, at least at this church now, we obviously don't have time to rehash all of that this week, but as we explore now in this new lesson, Believer's Baptism, uh, you'll at least continue to see why uh, infants are excluded. In other words, as we paint the positive picture of water baptism and what it signifies, uh, you'll aim to, we'll aim to also show you why infants would necessarily be excluded from that picture. So that's, in general, though, our goal just to study and, and the same kind of introduction to this third view that we've been giving this time on believer's baptism. Probably a good time to reiterate as we, before we really get into it, the same disclaimer from last week, namely that, you know, I don't think infant baptism needs to be a contentious issue. It matters. All truth matters. We want to know God's word. We want to get it right. But there's sometimes mature and genuine believers can disagree for various reasons. This should be a friendly in-house debate among brothers and, and believers. I don't see how this Issue affects the gospel in any way, so it should not divide us and disfellowship us from uh, our other brethren. But we're aiming to just seek the truth, get it right, and let's do so with humility, trusting God's spirit to guide us in his word. And just keep going, keep, keep studying, keep learning more, and uh, pursue unity. But let's, let's begin this survey, this introduction in understanding believers' baptism. So you remember last time I've just been giving you like loose points for organization to kind of do the same here. Some, just some, some points to hang your hat on, hang, hang some thoughts on. So first, let's begin with the New Testament practice of baptism. This is our little reminder Bible study, the New Testament practice of baptism. We don't have to spend a lot of time on this because if you recall back in lesson five, we, we did a full survey of every single passage that mentions water baptism in the Bible. And we're in the New Testament, really. It's not in the Old Testament. But, you know, we don't have time right now. We don't need to restudy all of these passages. But we'll just cite a few examples and remind you of just the conclusions we reached after studying every passage that mentions baptism, really water baptism or otherwise, in the New Testament. 
Now, if you want to follow along, you can turn to Acts. We'll, we'll be in Acts quite a bit. Uh, otherwise, you can listen along, but I'll start in Acts 2. I'm just going to pick a few examples here. As you're turning, I'm just going to, we have a lot to cover, so I'm going to just move. But Acts 2, 38, after his sermon, Peter says to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the first instance of water baptism in the New Testament after the foundation of the church. And the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles, the event of Pentecost. Peter preaches his first sermon. Many believe by God's power, and then they're baptized. Now, verse 41 says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So, you know, simply put, who was baptized on that day? Well, those who heard Peter preaching and then received his word, which wasn't everybody, about 3,000 at least males whom they counted. And so what was the, the process? They heard, they were convicted, they repented, they believed, they were baptized. Okay, simple enough. But as we have found and we'll find again, that's just the basic pattern throughout Acts. So Acts chapter 8 is another example. There, there's many. Acts eight twelve. You have Philip going off to Samaria, preaching the good news to the Samaritans. 8.12, it says, But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So Philip is preaching the gospel to Samaritans, and some of them believed. And as a result, what happened? Well, they were baptized, men and women we're baptized alike. The pattern is simple. They hear the gospel, they believe in the gospel, and then they are baptized. One more, just you know, for the sake of time, we'll only include a few, but Acts 18, verse 8. Acts 18. Paul, in his time at Corinth, is jumping in at verse 8. It says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And uh, many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. We'll revisit the notion of a household baptism later on, what we'll get there. But uh, for now, simply note that the leader of the synagogue believed in Jesus, along with all of his household. And then a third party, so just many Corinthians, they believed too. They heard, they were believing, and then they were baptized. So the pattern just holds that people hear the gospel, they believe in Jesus, and as a consequence, they're then baptized. And we could go on, but I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. We've studied all the verses on water baptism in Lesson 5, and you don't find anything different. The pattern's the same every time. Someone preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people hear, they're convicted, they repent, they believe in Jesus, and as a consequence, they're then baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay, that's Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. But this is the actual recorded practice of baptism in the New Testament. And the pattern is clear and consistent that baptism was administered on whom? Believers. And that's why this view is typically referred to as believers' baptism. That baptism, that the sign of baptism is meant for believers. But that, that's, we're really just getting started here. Let's keep going to a second loose point. 
Let's go to number two, the New Testament teaching on baptism. That was the New Testament practice of baptism, you know, mostly from Acts where you see baptism in action. Let's look at a little bit the New Testament teaching on baptism. So from, from the, the practice in Acts, it, at least the record that we have, it supports a believer's baptism. That's just what it is. They believed they were baptized. But let's look at some New Testament teaching on baptism. And when the apostles tell us about baptism, maybe its significance or its symbolism, what do they have to say? Now, technically, this is also a recap because if you go way back to lessons one and two, we, we explored the theological symbolism and significance of baptism in full. So again, for the sake of time, we can just repeat and summarize here. Everyone believes baptism is, is symbolic to some degree. What is being symbolized? Well, a few key passages. These I'll just read for you real quick. I think Romans 6, 3 through 4. Where Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And there's also Colossians 2, 11 and 12, which says that in Christ you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So we don't need to rehash those in detail. We spent almost a full lesson on just those two passages alone. But in these passages, Paul is speaking of our baptism into Christ, i.e. our conversion. But it's impossible to divorce this baptism from water baptism, though, because in the early church, the sign of water baptism was administered immediately after conversion, so much so that, you know, baptism simply became shorthand for conversion. So in the early church, to say you were baptized was to say you were converted. So when Paul speaks of our baptism into Christ or our conversion here, there's no doubt he's telling us, you know, these are the spiritual realities that are signified by water baptism. Even uh, pedobaptists agree on this point, like Sinclair Ferguson says, quote, Baptism is a sign and seal of the union with Christ and fellowship with the Father given by the Spirit and received by us through faith, end quote. We would agree completely. Now, as we say at great length in both of these passages, the Apostle Paul uses baptism to speak of our union with Christ and our new birth. And the symbolism should be pretty clear, you know, with, with immersion, right? We're baptized into Christ's death, meaning that in Christ, we've, we've died to sin. We've died to old self. And that's no doubt pictured by the waters of baptism as the person is plunged under the water. What, what a great symbol or image of them dying to sin and old self. But that person does not stay under the water. He or she rises up, which equally clearly symbolizes their, their rise to new life. That in Christ... By faith, we are spiritually resurrected and made alive. And that's nothing short of new birth or regeneration. And and these are the spiritual truths that are symbolized in baptism. don't, Don't forget, going back to our first study, the word baptize simply means to immerse. And it speaks of identification. Remember that? It's primarily speaking of identification. And then salvation 
We are baptized into Christ, meaning we're coming to identify with Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And water baptism is the outward sign of that inward identification. But of course, the very symbolism of baptism would at least seem to preclude infants and really anyone who's unregenerate. And we have in baptism, it's a symbol of regeneration. It's a symbol of new birth and the spiritual cleansing of the spirit at new birth that comes by union with Christ. Baptism in Christ, identification with Christ. So unless you hold to baptismal regeneration like, like the Catholics, you know, to apply baptism to infants really is to rob baptism of its symbolic significance. Baptism for confessing believers rightly symbolizes their new birth. And that's the pattern of every New Testament baptism. And baptism for infants, though, does not symbolize their new birth. You know, according to Paedobaptists, Baptism for an infant symbolizes their access to the promise of new birth by faith in Christ. And that, that may come from new, or rather from covenant theology, but you're going to struggle to find anything remotely like this in the New Testament's actual teaching on baptism. Instead, look, we are buried with Christ. We're raised up with Christ through faith. Colossians 2.12, we just read. So the sign and symbol of that new birth, baptism, you think it would be administered on those who have been born again, who where the reality fits the symbol. They have been risen to new life, therefore they should be baptized. The symbolism behind baptism supports a believer's baptism. Now, I want to add another verse here. Uh, the Great Commission, just further food for thought. As we're looking at the New Testament's teaching on baptism. Again, when the New Testament actually teaches us or says something about baptism, apart from just the examples of baptism, what's it saying? So if you want, you can turn to Matthew 28 or just listen to the Great Commission, which you know, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus said, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, you know well, what's the main command here? Make disciples, right? In the Greek, the main command is make disciples. What does that look like? How do you do that? That's modified by three participles, which tell you what making disciples looks like, going, baptizing, teaching. And so as we studied, baptism is seen as the initiatory rite for Christianity. It's the outward symbol that marks the beginning of the Christian life. It's one-time act marks the beginning of one's identification with Christ. But no, in the Great Commission, through baptism, what is the person being initiated into? Well, per the main command, discipleship. Right there, being initiated into discipleship. Baptism marks the beginning of one as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But you know, discipleship comes one way. Real discipleship comes one way. By repentance and faith in Christ. No one is born into true discipleship. You can be born into a Christian family, but real discipleship comes only via the new birth through faith. What did Jesus say? Mark 8, 34. And if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know, unlike Old Testament Israel, membership in Christ's new covenant community does not come by first birth. 
Discipleship cannot be inherited. You can enter the visible church by birth, sure, but you only enter the community of his true disciples by personal faith. You deny yourself, you repent of your sins, you cry out and trust in him. A decision is required. Faith is required. And that's, well, precisely why Baptists or just non-Pedobaptists believe that infants are excluded. They cannot be true disciples of Jesus Christ until they come to an understanding of the gospel and a decision of faith. And that's obviously not possible for an infant. And also, after one is made a disciple and then baptized, the Great Commission says, after that, they should be what? Taught to observe all that Jesus commanded. This is a small secondary point, but you know that third participle, teaching them to observe all that he commanded, it seems to clearly presuppose that these new disciples can be taught. They're of a suitable age and maturity to believe in Jesus, to follow him, and then to be taught in all his ways. Now again, the, the picture here, at least as it seems to me, is one of, of a believer being baptized being a disciple, not an infant. Now, you're not fulfilling the Great Commission by baptizing infants. Baptizing infants is not how true disciples are made. It is good and right for Christian parents to raise their children in the visible church and in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But true disciples are made by preaching the gospel, and baptism should be reserved for those who've been made disciples by their faith. And before we move on, let me add, you know, one other, almost like a sub point here, dovetailing off of this, and that's, that's the precedent of John the Baptist's baptism. You ever think about that? I mean, it's not insignificant. Let's add this kind of sub point here real quick, but even in Matthew's gospel, and when Jesus gives the great commission command to make disciples and to baptize people, there's no doubt that John's baptism is in the background of the disciples' mind. They were baptized by John. They had already carried on John's baptism with with Jesus. They were baptizing people by immersing them in water. They were already doing that. Now, granted, the significance of this act changes after the cross, and we all agree with that, that John's baptism was connected to repentance. He called on the people to just return to God, realign themselves with their God, so that when the Messiah came, they they would run right into him. He was making ready the, the way of the Lord. But in, in, in John's baptism, people were you know, re-identifying with God, their need for the Messiah. But in Christ's baptism, like the Messiah has already come. So you are now directly identifying with the Messiah. And so this new baptism signifies one's repentance, turning from sin, and also faith. Not just repentance, but it, it must come with faith, where you're confessing Jesus as that Messiah. Again, though, there's, there's just no doubt that John's baptism set the precedent and laid the pattern for the church's baptism. But note that John's baptism was a believer's baptism, where you had to consciously repent and return to God to be baptized by John. And this is why he rejected the Pharisees from his baptism, that they didn't meet the condition, which was repentance. It's not just a bath in the Jordan. You required a turning of one's heart. What's interesting is there's just no record of anyone bringing infants or children to John to be baptized. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But at the very least, there's zero record of that. 
What we do know, though, from the text of John's baptism, he performed a believer's baptism. And that practice and expectation would have naturally carried over into the disciples' understanding of baptism. When Jesus tells them, hey, now it's your turn to make disciples and baptize, that's going to be their framework of understanding. So anyway, from the New Testament's explicit teaching and examples, baptism seems clear. You got people who hear the gospel. They repent of their sins. They believe in Jesus. After that, they're baptized, which consists of them being fully immersed in water and coming back up again. That's a living object lesson of what the Lord Jesus has just done for them in salvation. You know, by faith, they were cleansed of their sins. They died to their old self. They rose to new life. And baptism then is a a fitting picture of their regeneration via union with Christ. That, in a nutshell, that's believer's baptism, right? And it's for those who have made that profession of faith. Mason? Was John the Baptist baptism only for Yeah. Yeah. This was for, he was making ready the way of the Lord for the house of Israel. Yeah. Now, I should say, everything we've studied and covered so far is typically unconvincing to most covenantalists. Or I shouldn't say unconvincing, it's just not enough. Now, many like R.C. Sproul would agree with everything we've said so far. They would really have no issue with everything we've said regarding believers' baptism. R.C. Sproul, for example, even though he's a paedo-baptist, an infant baptizer, he said he, he believes in believers' baptism, just not exclusively. And most paedo-baptists would agree with that. You know, if an adult converts and becomes a believer, he or she would then be baptized as a believer And their baptism would function just like we've described, a believer's baptism. And you'll find believer's baptisms in many paedo-baptists, typically Presbyterian churches. But, you know, the the difference is they contend baptism is not exclusively for believers. We get a little more nuanced and technical here, right? It's also for the children of believers. And that's that's where we'll, we'll deviate, as you already know. So we need to continue by hopefully trying to show the exclusivity of baptism for believers. That's where you really got to make the case, right? The exclusivity of a believer's baptism. So let's, let's keep going here. I think we're making good time. Uh, a third general point here. We've looked at the New Testament practice, just the examples of baptism. And we've looked at the New Testament teachings of the main passages that you know, actually tell us something about baptism. A third point, the New Testament's silence on infant baptism. The New Testament's silence on infant baptism. And we alluded to this last week. We'll touch on some things here. I find it pretty amazing for all the the fuss made about infant baptism. The New Testament is just completely 100% silent on it. There's not a single example of infant baptism or unbelieving baptism. Not a single reference to it or allusion to it. Infant baptism never taught supported, commanded, even mentioned. There's just nothing. And Paedobaptists know this. They know they have zero direct support for infant baptism in the New Testament. They're typically left, aside from just appealing to covenant theology, you know, take some verses that that don't speak about infant baptism and, and try and make them support infant baptism. For example, you often read in some of their books, you know, they'll appeal to, you know, Jesus, he blesses children and says, you know, don't hinder the children from coming to me for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, like in Matthew. 
But you look at those verses in Matthew. First, they say nothing about baptism. Second, it's not teaching that children belong or our children are in the kingdom of God uh, de facto. Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, those with a humble, childlike faith. And children are perfect examples of what it takes to enter the kingdom. This does not mean children are just de facto born into God's kingdom. Now, look, we believe in infant salvation, just purely by God's grace, that after an infant dies, for example, they would be ushered into God's kingdom just by his mercy and grace. But nowhere does Scripture say that all infants or infants of believing parents are just de facto born into the kingdom. You're you're born into a state of in the kingdom, and then later, you know, you're kicked out at some point if you don't come to faith. There's just no teaching on that. We'll argue again later, you don't enter the new covenant community, the church, by first birth, but by second birth. Now, last week we covered in much greater detail some of the other key verses Paedobaptists typically cite for support, like Acts 2.39 is typically the number one verse. So you have to get last week's message. We don't have time to, to recover all that. But I do want to reiterate a few points on the household baptism passages. We didn't have a lot of time for that last week. You know, they often point to you know, the household baptism passages as some you know, likely examples for infant or children baptism. And it is true. There are five passages in the New Testament that speak of an entire household being baptized. But once again, there, there's just a silence. They say nothing about children or infants being present. It, it just has to be assumed that infants and children are present. But you could just as easily assume everyone's over 18 or over 12 or pick a number. Just, it's just nothing is said. In fact, I think on the, to the contrary, when you examine the household passages closely, they seem to better fit the pattern of a believer's baptism. Now, the natural reading of these texts is that everyone in the household heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and that's why they were baptized. So why don't we look at the passages? Let's go, uh, go to Acts 16. You first have Acts 10.48. That one is very clear. Just summarize, you know, in the household of Cornelius and those who were with him. But it says explicitly, who was baptized? Well, verse 44, only those who heard Peter preach. They heard Peter preach. They received the Holy Spirit with the visible sign. And then they were baptized. So that, that case is really just kind of a non-issue. The only people baptized there received the Holy Spirit. No infants obviously included. You know, Acts 16, 15 speaks of Lydia. It says, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, you know, stay, come into my house and stay. This one's a very brief reference. It really says nothing one way or another. You're just left to total assumption and inference. Uh, Both sides can say whatever they want. Just nothing in the text tells us anything about children being present or excluded. But look down at Acts 16, verse 31. The Philippian jailer. His baptism with his household. Remember the Philippian jailers converted. He says, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31. Paul and Silas, they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Now, does that verse mean that if the jailer believes alone, his whole household will be saved by proxy? Because it says, you'll be saved, you and your household. Well, obviously not. 
the natural reading when he includes you and your household is that they'll be saved if they meet that condition, if they likewise believe in the Lord Jesus. Everyone agrees to that part. part. This is why verse 32 says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And Paul doesn't just preach the gospel to the jailer, but to his whole household. Seems inclusive. It says all who were in his house. This is an implication, but it seems obvious that these people heard Paul preach. They could have understood him preaching. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't say, but it seems pretty obvious if they're able to hear and understand that we're not talking about infants here. Verse 33 says, He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized. He and all his household. So next, a jailer and his household were baptized. Why was the household baptized? Simply because the jailer believed? I mean, do you know how misleading it would be to baptize the household members simply on the basis of the jailer's faith and not their own? Maybe his household servants an adult spouse or children in the house. That's not the function of baptism. You're not saved by someone else's faith. Why would you be baptized based on someone else's faith? And the sign of conversion should not be administered because of someone else's faith, be it your parents, your spouse, your household, your head of household, whatever. No, but instead, look at verse 34. Now it says, He brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. The jailer rejoiced and he believed with his whole household. And the most natural reading of the text is that the whole household believed along with the jailer. They all heard the gospel. They all believed with the jailer. And so they all were baptized and they all rejoiced with the jailer. This passage much better, just more naturally fits the paradigm of believers' baptism. And either way, though, it just it precludes an infant being included. Because not all paedo-baptists use this passage, but the ones that do, they want to argue that infants are included in this baptism, even though infants are not included in the hearing of the gospel and the rejoicing afterward. Like that, that does not talk about the infants, just the baptism part. It seems inconsistent to me. It just rather appears that infants are just not in the picture in this household. A couple more real quick, Acts 18, verse 8. We read this earlier, you know, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Three parties mentioned in this passage, Crispus, his household, and then many Corinthians. But you notice each party is explicitly said to have believed. And that's why they were baptized. It's a believer's baptism. There's no indication anyone was baptized who did not come to faith in Christ, at least in that verse. Lastly, I'll just summarize 1 Corinthians 1.16 is the fifth passage. Just Paul mentions offhand that he baptized the household of Stephanus. That's all it says, moves on, says nothing else. But what's interesting is actually at the end of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, 15, he mentions the household of Stephanus again. Same household, the household of Stephanus. And how is that household described? He calls them the first fruits of Achaia who devoted themselves to the ministry. It seems pretty clear from that description that the household of Stephanus included 
you know, believing members, not infants. They believed, and they then devoted themselves to the ministry. That's not typically how you would describe an infant. Anyway, after consideration, none of the household passages provide any support, direct or indirect, for infant baptism. Just that the silence remains. You're not finding examples. You're not finding direct teaching. And if I had one more, you know, kind of sub-point here. You know, consider the absence of teaching that baptism has replaced circumcision. Consider the absence of teaching that baptism has replaced circumcision. And this, of course, is the main argument of paedobaptists. That, you know, they, they don't need examples of infant baptism. Who cares? If you can link baptism to circumcision, well, there you go. Because that was performed on infants and that, that's all you really need to do. But you're not going to find that link in any explicit verse in the New Testament. You're not going to find a verse that directly links, or even indirectly, baptism with Old Covenant circumcision. That link comes from covenant theology, which I think carelessly reads Old Covenant realities and just brings them forward into the New Covenant. We'll talk about that later. But remember last week, there's one link, one time Paul does link baptism and circumcision. Remember from last week? Colossians 2, 11 and 12. You can get that message from last week, but just to summarize, the link that Paul actually makes in that passage is not between baptism and physical circumcision, but baptism and spiritual circumcision. You know, you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's talking about a heart circumcision, but that's entirely appropriate. Because what do you know? Baptism signifies the same thing as heart circumcision, regeneration. That's what they needed. That's what Christ has provided. That's what baptism signifies. Its real parallel is not to physical circumcision performed on infants, but heart circumcision, which was for believers only, by the way. But here's the thing. If the New Testament writers saw a parallel between physical circumcision and baptism, They never said so. They failed to say a single thing about it. They never even suggested a link. Again, they'll they'll go to Acts 2.39. Just go to last week to get that. We did a long time with that. So just go last week for that. It, It does not fit. But let me also add in here something I didn't have time to include last week. And that this the silence from the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Have you thought about that? Do you even know what that is? Acts 15. The church was dealing with Judaizers. These were people who, these were Jews who had converted to Christ. They taught that Gentile converts to Christ had to be circumcised to be saved. And they weren't happy with the church and the apostles. Like, you guys, you're admitting all these Gentiles into the church, but you're setting aside the sign of the old covenant. Why aren't you requiring these Gentiles to be circumcised to enter the new covenant people of God? How how can you do this? Right? Circumcision. Isn't that a huge deal to God and his covenant? How can you set aside the sign of the old covenant like that? Now, if the apostles were paedo-baptists, this controversy, it's just like t-ball. You're setting it up for them to knock it out of the park. All they had to say to deal with the Judaizers was, hey, guys, look, don't worry. We're not setting aside circumcision. It's been replaced by baptism. Like, we're just going to baptize Gentiles and then Gentile babies It'll have the same effect. That's all they had to say. But they didn't. 
that's because the apostles saw discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. Again, we'll talk about that discontinuity in a moment. But the silence of the apostles on baptism, replacing circumcision in Acts 15, speaks volumes, to me at least, because you have a passage that was just beckoning a connection, but none was ever said. And so in the end, I agree with Brian Chappelle, who is a pedo-baptist, but he nevertheless admits, quote, we who believe in infant baptism must confess that the lack of any specific example of infant baptism in the New Testament is a strong counterweight to our position, end quote. I agree. You know, if you take a piece of paper, make two columns, one side says believer's baptism, the other side says infant baptism, and then write down every verse that mentions it or supports it or teaches on it, you'd have a one-sided piece of paper. There's just no teaching on infant baptism, no examples, it's not mentioned, it's not commanded, it's not advocated, it's not connected to circumcision, nothing. And to the contrary, everything, every time the New Testament examples or teaches on baptism, it fits believer's baptism. Uh, So exegesis is squarely on the side of believer's baptism, which I find most convincing. But I still have to say that even at this point, most paedobaptists not convinced. Doesn't matter. None of this matters to them. Again, they might even agree with everything we've said. No problem. It doesn't affect their position. Why not? Well, to them, it still comes down to one simple fact. Look, God allowed infants into his covenant community, into his old covenant community, before via circumcision. Baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the new covenant community. And unless you have an explicit statement excluding infants from this community, they should still be allowed in. They should still receive the sign of the covenant. And since there is no statement forbidding or excluding infants from being baptized, which is true, that's all they need. This is how things worked on the old covenant. There's a fundamental continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. He let children in in the old covenant. They were part of the covenant community. Well, guess what? They still are unless there's something to revoke it. You'll see that kind of language in just every book, every Paedobaptist book or article. And so that's, that, that's how they establish infant baptism. That, that's really all they need, a connection to the old covenant. And so most will then say, look, the burden of proof is on us to prove otherwise. Now, first, I would say exegetically, I hope we've done that, or at least tried to do that, that the actual biblical testimony of the New Testament, at least to me, seems crystal clear in support of believers' baptism. But secondly, though, I think to, to address this final issue, we need to reiterate some things we said last week about the discontinuity of the old and new covenants. So we'll have a last point here, a point number four. New covenant discontinuity revisited. New covenant discontinuity revisited. Yeah, Darren? Oh, okay. So Darren asked, you know, the, the covenants we're talking about now, Old New Covenant, is that where we're like, we believe the same thing or differently? So when we talk Old New Covenants, we might understand them differently, but we're talking about the biblical covenants, you know, like the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant in Christ, right? The covenant theology, which I gave you a little intro to last week, sees these additional covenants 
covenant of works, covenant of grace, and then sometimes the covenant of redemption. That there's a lot of truth in them. We're not going to use those terms. They, they, that's a system that I think a lot just put that on the Bible. There's a lot of truth in them, but I, I believe they take a lot of it too far. They believe, for example, as we're going to see, that the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, for example, and the New Covenant, they're just two different expressions or administrations of the one covenant of grace. And so they, they flatten all of the biblical covenants, like the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic. They flatten them into just the covenant of grace, just different expressions. New Covenant is, is really just more of the same. It's a renewing of the Old Covenant, reworking of the Old Covenant. And, and that's where I would disagree. Does that kind of answer help you out a little bit? So, like I said, and I keep saying this, we, we, this point was one we covered in, in a lot of detail last week. So, I already told you these are really kind of a part one, part two. These two lessons kind of go together. So, you'll need to get last week to, to see more. But most paedobaptists, not all, but most are covenantalists. So, some wouldn't agree with what I just said right there. But most of them are typically covenantalists. And they see a strong continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That they're just two different administrations of the one covenant of grace. That circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, which it was. And it was given to God's old covenant people, Israel, and their children, which it was. And it marked their inclusion in the covenant community, which it did. Now, since the new covenant to them is just an advanced expression of the old covenant, things should largely be the same. Baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the new covenant, likewise given to God's people and their children. It doesn't indicate their salvation. It merely marks their inclusion in the new covenant community, which is the church. And so that, that, that's all they're doing when they're baptizing an infant. It doesn't mean they're saved. It doesn't mean they will be saved. It's not a guarantee of their salvation. It's a, it's a sign to faith. It holds out the promise of faith if they come to believe. But when they baptize an infant, it is putting them in the new covenant community, which is the church, and they can therefore leave later and fall under the curses of the covenant or believe and get the blessings of the covenant. But as we pointed out last time, I think covenantalists are just greatly overstating the continuity between the old and new covenants. And we covered many, many different points of discontinuity last time. One part that I think we should reiterate is the fact that the new covenant community is not a mixed body like the old covenant community. You remember that? I figured we included it again because sometimes it's clearer when you hear it a second time. It sinks in. But the new covenant community, the church, is not a mixed body like the old covenant community. The old covenant was by nature as an ethnic and national covenant. You can't divorce or take out the ethnic and national aspects of the old covenant. It had spiritual blessings. Those were entered only by faith. But fundamentally, the old covenant was made with a people group, national Israel. And entrance into that community came by first birth. You're born into it. It was a covenant for the physical seed of Abraham. Spiritual blessings for the spiritual descendants of Abraham, yes, but that the covenant was made with the physical seed of Abraham. You don't need faith to enter that community, just circumcision. But the new covenant was meant to be new and different in that respect, among many other respects. The new covenant is not, yeah, Ed, real quick. Yeah. 
Yes, and you, Gentiles could come into Judaism. And there's examples in the Old Testament where Gentiles were come in. But you didn't have to have faith in Yahweh. You just had to be circumcised. You're identifying with the people of God. Now, of course, typically you would do that because you believe in, in Yahweh. But all you had to do was be circumcised and you're, you're into the covenant community. But the new covenant was meant to be new and different, like I said, in that respect among others. That the new covenant is not just a repackaging or renewing of the old covenant with, with different symbols. That it's radically new. It's a covenant of salvation. And the body it creates, right? The old covenant created a body. Some were saved. Most were not saved. The new covenant creates a body as well. But just by its definition, it's a body of the regenerate that the new covenant does not produce a mixed body. The visible church is a mixed body, but the true new covenant community is the invisible church. The unbelievers and the unregenerate, they don't participate in the new covenant or its blessings to any degree. They're not filled with the Spirit. So this is why, no, we should not expect baptism to just completely replace circumcision as the sign of the new covenant in every respect. Like, I fully believe baptism is the sign of the new covenant. That, that's kind of obvious to me. But look, how do you enter the new covenant community? You entered the old covenant community by first birth. You're just born into it. And so the sign of circumcision was very appropriately administered at birth. But you enter the new covenant community one way, and one way only, by faith, by regeneration, by new birth. In the new covenant, it's the exclusive body of the redeemed. And that precludes infants. Again, unless you believe in baptismal regeneration. But the sign of this covenant, baptism, it should therefore rightly be administered upon the second birth, which is one enters, that's when one enters the new covenant community. Real quick, turn to Galatians 3. Time is quickly running out, but I think we can, we can squeeze this in. Galatians 3. Galatians 3. And then follow along as we read 26 through 29. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith, in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? Now, Pedo-Baptists make a big deal of this being made heirs according to the promise of Abraham, which I actually fully agree with. There, there is that spiritual dynamic to the Abrahamic covenant. And just the question is, who are the real heirs of that promise? He says, only those who belong to Christ. Who belongs to Christ? Uh, those of faith. You are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's only those who've been baptized into Christ, i.e. born again. You don't belong to faith by the faith, rather, you don't belong to Christ by the faith of your parents. You belong to the visible church by the faith of your, of your parents, but you're not a son of God until you have faith in Christ and that you're baptized into Christ 
then you're an heir of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, where God said he would bless all the families of the earth and, and, and uh, the seed. And we are descendants of that covenant. We are the spiritual descendants of the Abrahamic covenant by faith in Christ, not the faith of your parents, by your faith in Christ. And the new covenant is not producing a mixed body. It's entirely compromised. The body of Christ, right? It's entirely compromised of those who've received a heart circumcision. Let me add one more thing. You know, we said earlier, baptism is the initiatory rite of the Christian life. One second, Rod. It marks the beginning of discipleship, which again comes by faith. But baptism also marks the coming and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, who in turn baptizes us or immerses us into the people of God, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's the baptism of the Spirit that places us in the church, the new covenant community. Entrance into the church is not by first birth, but by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which comes at the second birth. And so the church, what is the church? It's this one body of believers who are united in Christ by the one spirit. Isn't that Ephesians 4, 4? There's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. If you're going to include infants in that body who are not regenerate, they don't have the spirit, you're subverting what the church is. The church is a body of the regenerate. Now, look, we welcome infants and children into the visible church. We teach them. We share the gospel with them, hoping to lead them to Christ. But we just we need to be clear. They're not regenerated. They're not saved. They're not part of the new covenant until they believe. And so that's why baptism should follow that. Put it in one more way. The new covenant church is a community of the spirit, not the flesh. Would you agree? The new covenant church is a community of the spirit, not the flesh. What makes the new covenant new? Truly new. I mean, think about the old covenant. That God dealt with his people through mediators, and he did so in a tribal fashion. That God's relationship with his people largely depended on their mediator. If the priest or the king did what was right, the people would be blessed and vice versa. But not all the people were given or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The evidence we have is that God's spirit just primarily rested on some of the leaders, on the mediators. They received the spirit, not the people. But the prophets foresaw a change in this model of the people of God. That the tribal nature would end with a new covenant. Remember we read Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 last time. And the new covenant, what makes it new? He says, it's not like the covenant which I made with your fathers when I took them out of Egypt. He says, it's not like that in Jeremiah 31. This is a new covenant. What makes it new? Well, for one, he says, all of God's people will be marked by the knowledge of God. From the greatest to the least, every single one of them will know me, Jeremiah 31. Furthermore, they're all going to be regenerated, given a new heart. They're all going to be filled with his spirit, Ezekiel 36. This is why Joel and Joel 2 look forward to a time when when God would pour out his spirit on everyone, every one of his people, your sons, your daughters, even your male and female servants would prophesy because God would pour out his spirit, not just on the king or the prophet or the priest, but on all of God's people. The new covenant is fundamentally new in this regard. This is the newness of the new covenant. You know, were, were people saved in the Old Testament 
apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from faith, apart from regeneration? No, of course not. That's all in the new covenant. That, that's not necessarily new. The point of the new covenant, though, is God's going to form a new people of God, a spiritual people of God, not simply an ethnic people, but a spiritual people. It is the remnant. The new covenant people is the remnant. They're marked by salvation, which is where everyone in this community knows God, is filled with his spirit, is born again, and follows him, which is completely unlike the old covenant community, where most of them perish because of unbelief. This is why there's no remnant concept in the new covenant. The remnant is the true church, those who are born again by faith in Christ. Rod, you had a hand real quick? Okay. Well, yeah, we're, okay, so our time is up, so let me just conclude. You know, John Murray, who's a noted paedo-baptist, he said, quote, the evidence for infant baptism falls into the category of good and necessary inference, end quote. I understand that. I understand and I respect where they're coming from, but just for me, it's not enough. There's no biblical teaching on infant baptism. The theological case they make, to me, is it's underwhelming and, and just unconvincing as this drives too much from covenant theology, and I see more discontinuity between the new and old covenants than they do. But like I said last time, th- that's really where the issue is. Where you, where you find yourself convinced on the continuity or discontinuity between the old and new covenants, that's going to decide the matter for you. I mean, that's pretty much it. But I find that the scriptures teach the new covenant is drastically new. There's many points of continuity. There's only one people of God. But there are changes and that God is now forming a new people of God under a new mediator, the Messiah. They're marked by new birth, faith in Christ, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the sign of that covenant, which is baptism, well, therefore, I think should accompany entrance into that covenant. But it's just that entrance into that covenant does not come by first birth or the faith of your parents, but by second birth, your faith. And that is believer's baptism. And that explains, I think, why at every turn, the New Testament advocates a believer's baptism, which is what we hold here. All right, well, we, we sort of made it. Sort of made it. Covered a lot of ground. If you have questions, you can come up after. We're almost done with this series through baptism, you know, what we have next. So we spent a good amount of time grappling with, you know, the different views from the sacramental to the covenantal to the believer's baptism. What's left is some of the the practical stuff, you know, the practical application, the implementation. What does baptism look like in a church? And and what's the lasting value? Because I believe, you know, you think of communion as having this ordinance with ongoing value because we do it so often. Baptism, though, is not meant to be one done, never think about it again. Granted, it is a one-time act at conversion, but it's not that you should never recall it. It has lasting value uh, as a symbol of our new birth. We'll look into some of that next week and wrap this study up. So let me pray and close our time. Lord God, we praise you for our time and your word, which is clear, it's true. But it's big. It's, it's a big book. It's deep. And it says so much about your word, your will, and your ways, different times of history, working under different covenants, different mediators. There's a lot to learn. And we know that even godly men can sometimes see things a little bit differently. Help us to be humble and gracious with those who disagree on matters like, like infant baptism that, that don't intersect the gospel. At the same time, truth matters. We want to get it right. So give us a spirit of, of desire. We, we, we want to search your scriptures. We want to study. 
and learn and, and become convinced and at least convicted of, of the truth. Uh, we, we praise you for baptism and the symbol that it is of the new birth and of regeneration, which, which reminds us and points us back to our Savior. Where we can all agree that we are saved by, by him alone, his work on the cross, and its effects, our union to him, which, which bring us to new life. Apart from his work, and we would never die to sin and rise to new life. And we praise you for what baptism symbolizes and, and what stands behind it and the work of Christ and uh, that's applied to us. Keep us as we go from here. Keep us in your will as we seek you in all that we do. And we give you thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.